All right, please uh, take your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, If you did not receive a handout when you came in, I would like you to raise your hand so that you get that handout today, because I am going to make a reference to that. I don't want you to feel lost if you didn't get it, all right? All right, and I'm doing something very dangerous here. I have my phone with me in the pulpit, and it's not muted right now. All right, it is now, but I'm going to put it down here on the front chair, because if it starts ringing, it'll vibrate against the pulpit, and you'd hear it anyway. Had a good friend that got caught that way one time, um, Sunday night church, they had about 300 people there, and it was just ringing, and he's like, okay, what do I do? So, hi. Can I call you back? I'm kind of busy right now. (laughs) So uh, please uh, mute your phones too so it doesn't get in the way. All right, I believe everybody uh, received that handout. On one side you have a chart. I referenced that last week. Um, You might call it the rules of interpreting typology because the tabernacle is a type and the Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the imagery and the symbolism that is in the tabernacle. And so there's a type, and then there's an antitype. An antitype is what intensifies or fulfills the type. So you'll need that chart. And um, then on the far right-hand side, you'll see a column called allegory. Allegory is uh, pretty much when somebody eats anchovies on pizza and has a bad dream. All right, and um, they just write anything they want, and so they violate the natural rules of interpreting the Bible because they just make up what they want to make up, and so that's in the allegory column. Today, uh, there's going to be some that's in the middle column, which is not typology, it's not allegory, it's symbolism. Now, we cannot create doctrine on symbolism, all right, so when I mention some of these things today, you're going to say, oh, that seems like maybe pastor's stretching a little bit. Well, it's not allegory, but it's not typology. It's symbolism. And there's some definite connections, and so you need to, to know and understand how that goes through. Uh, one commentator put it this way, that understanding typology is a lost art in today's church. And that's one of the reasons why we fall prey to allegorizing, as we don't understand the, the, the rules of interpreting typology. So we're going to be in Exodus 25. We're continuing our series on the tabernacle. Uh, the series is entitled, That I May Dwell Among Them. Uh, this is the whole purpose or the theme of this series, is that we may know that God can dwell with us, that our fellowship was with Him and with His Son, Jesus Christ, 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. Um, that God desires to dwell with people. That's a wonderful and a beautiful thought. And we shared last week that there were so many that don't believe that. The atheist, the deist, um, the agnostic. Um, so there are literally uh, tens of thousands of people uh, in our state, in our, in our county, maybe even hundreds or thousands that don't believe that God desires to be with people, but He does. And it's a wonderful thing to know that God desires to dwell with His people. 
On the back side of that chart, you have the outline for today's message. And so you can see where I'm going to go. And about point two, letter B, hunger will kick in and your thought will drift off to lunch and you'll start looking at your watches. All right. So, but you do have an outline of the message so you can follow along today. Um, but today's message is uh, the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, but this is an artistic rendering of what the tabernacle may have looked like. Now, all of the pictures that I show you today can be described that way. Artistic renderings of what they may have looked like. Uh, because the author of the book of Hebrews says, uh, specifically when we come to the Ark of the Covenant, that we cannot speak in great detail of it now. And I, I gave you a warning last week that sometimes a shadow is out of proportion. You know, if the sun is low and it's behind you, your shadow can be 15, 20 feet long. And so we don't want to get caught up in things that we're emphasizing too much detail when we can't really give that much detail. So we'll stick safely to the scriptures today as we go through that. Uh, what I would like you to get out of this today is that you can see through the Ark of the Covenant God's initiating love and his desire to fellowship with you, and as symbolized here, or as a type of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I'm going to start out, if you're in Exodus uh, chapter 25, I'm going to read from the book of Hebrews chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, so if you're going to turn there, if you want to make sure you get back to Exodus 25. This is what uh, the Holy Spirit says, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in heaven should be purified with these. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures or the copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So when God gave Moses instruction to make the tabernacle, he said, be very careful to make it according to the pattern that I show you. That word pattern can also be type. That's the Greek word typos, where we get this whole field of Bible study called typology. And so here, this is just a type of something that is greater. God wants you to understand that this was earthly, but there's a spiritual truth that he wants you to get from this series. And today we're going to uh, have a message on the Ark of the Covenant. Once again, this is an artistic rendering. Um, it may be grossly inadequate, all right, or it may be close. Uh, but this is what, when you read the passage, uh, what might come to mind as you look at this. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was actually two separate things, even though it looks like it's one. It's a chest or a box that has a lid on it. The angels that you see there um, form part of the lid called the mercy seat. And you could take that lid off, and then inside the Ark of the Covenant would be an empty box, but it didn't stay empty, and we'll find that out as we go through the message today. But here's the number one thing. I do want you to turn to this passage, all right? Let's go over to Romans chapter 3. 
Romans chapter 3. This is key. This is uh, So what I'm going to do, instead of trying to make you work for it, I'm just going to put it out there. The Old Testament Ark of the Covenant is just a type of Jesus Christ. It's a symbol, a figure, but what really fulfills it, what brings it to completion is Jesus Christ. And so in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, we read this about Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now that word in English that was really big, propitiation, in the Greek is the same word that the Hebrew would use in the Hebrew language for the mercy seat. And so the Young's literal translation of the Bible put it this way, whom God did set forth as a mercy seat through faith in his blood for the showing forth of his righteousness because of the passing over of the bygone sins and the forbearance of God. Now, a Jewish translation of the Bible puts it this way. God put Yeshua forward as the kapara, the covering on the Ark of the Covenant, or the mercy seat, for sin through his faithfulness in respect to his blood sacrificial death. And so Jesus Christ, if you were to look at this and say, where, where, where does this cast a forward shadow that has anything to do with, with Christ? Well, the lid. The lid is known as the mercy seat. All right, now in Exodus chapter 25, um, you see the tabernacle, and this is the first piece of furniture that is mentioned before anything else is mentioned. All right? So look with me in verse 10. And they shall make an ark. Now I'm going to change the name. Uh, some of you in your King James have the old word, but it's acacia wood. Um, two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof, and a cubit and a half the height thereof. And thou shalt overlay it with pure gold, within and without shalt thou overlay it and shall make upon it a crown of gold round about. And thou shalt cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in the four corners thereof, and two rings shall be in one side of it, and two rings in the other side of it. And thou shalt make two staves of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And thou shalt put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark, that the ark may be borne with them. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark, and they shall not be taken from it. And thou shalt put into the ark the testimony which I shall give thee. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof, and a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. And thou shalt make two cherubims of gold of beaten work, shalt thou make them, in the two ends of the mercy seat. And make one cherub on one end, and the other cherub on the other end. Even of the mercy seat shall you make the cherubims of the two ends thereof. And the cherubims shall stretch forth their wings on high, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and their faces shall look one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall their faces of the cherubim be. And thou shalt put the mercy seat upon, uh, above upon the ark, and in the ark shalt thou put the testimony that I shall give thee. And there I will meet with thee, 
That's important. Verse 22. And there I will meet with thee, and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubims, which are upon the ark of the testimony, of all the things which I shall give thee in commandment unto the children of Israel. So once again, we see God says, and there I will meet with you. Well, we don't have a tabernacle today, and poor Indiana Jones never found the ark, all right? So we don't have the ark of the covenant, but we do have God still meeting with us today in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that living mercy seat. And it is there that we can have our relationship and our fellowship with God today through the person of the Lord Jesus. And so there's a lot of detail that is in here about the staves and the rings and and so forth and the angels above them. And believe me, I did plenty of reading this week. Some of it was very imaginative, allegorical, uh, very creative. And I just can't share that with you, but I can share a few things uh, that we'll spend together as we go through this. All right, so what is a tabernacle? Really quickly, just to review. The tabernacle is the tent where God chose to live or to dwell with his people. What is an ark? Well, it's a box or a place of safekeeping. So what was Moses instructed to put in it? All right, the Ten Commandments, all right? Um, and so we see that an ark is something of safekeeping. Uh, Noah had an ark, um, the ark that Moses is supposed to make here today. And then in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 13, verse 52, um, a homeowner had, like you might call it, a safe, but it, it's called an ark, all right? And so it's for safekeeping. So here's one thing that we can learn from the Ark of the Covenant. In Christ, we have a safe meeting place with God. We are secure in Christ. I thought this was interesting. One commentator said, the book of Romans approaches the tabernacle from the outside gate and works its way into the mercy seat at Romans 3.25. But the book of Ephesians starts at the inside and works its way out to the altar. So we'll go through that as we go through. Now, if there is a shadow being cast, sometimes you say, what's what's causing that shadow? And you turn around and you find the real object. So a shadow implies substance. The Ark of the Covenant is a shadow. Turn around and let's gaze at Christ today and what he's done for us. He's where we meet God. He's our safety. Now, let's look here um, at this first point. The ark shows us our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the materials. So, what is the ark made of? Well, it's made in verse 10 of wood, acacia wood, and it's also overlaid in gold. All right? So, here's where we're popping out of the typology column going into the illustration or the symbol column, but wood is symbolic of Christ's humanity. Would you notice how many times the Old Testament prophets refer to the coming Messiah as some form of a woody substance? And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, 
a branch shall grow out of his roots, Isaiah 1, 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth, Jeremiah 23, verse 5. In those days and at that time I will cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, and he shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land, Jeremiah 33, verse 15. This is Zechariah 3.8. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they um, are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he shall grow up out of his place and shall build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah 6.12. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. So all of those Old Testament prophets said that a root would come up out of dry ground, a, a branch that would go with that. Now, if you look at the acacia tree, this is what would be available to them in the desert. It's something that can come up out of dry ground. Uh, come out of difficult times and circumstances. But the Lord Jesus Christ says, I am that root of David, the offspring of David. So it is symbolic of Christ's humanity. Now we're going back just to a picture of the ark because it's overlaid with what? Gold. All right. Now gold is also representative then of the deity of Jesus Christ. We find here that this is representative of where God would meet with the people. But in verse 17 of Exodus 25, and thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. So the lid wasn't wood overlaid with gold. It was a solid piece of gold. Um, the Bible tells us that the craftsmen who worked upon this piece of furniture were filled with the Holy Spirit. How do you make an artistic lid that has uh, a crown around it. How do you make the cherubims? That's all one piece of gold. How do you cut them and shape them without breaking off the, the pieces of that? Well, they needed to be filled with the Holy Spirit to figure that out. And Christ was filled with the Spirit of God. And so, make that mercy seat of pure gold. And then, of course, we know that Romans 3.25 says that Christ was set forth as that mercy seat through faith in his blood. And what was it that the wise men presented unto Jesus in their treasures? They presented unto him gifts of gold, worthy of worship, worthy of deity. All right, so these symbolisms here show us Christ as a person, his humanity, also his deity. All right, now here um, is a picture of the tabernacle overlay, all the, the big picture of it. And um, starting on your right-hand side, that wire mesh, that's the brazen altar, and that's on the east side where the gate was, the one door that people could enter in through. Then they would come to that circular object, which was the brazen wash bin, which we'll find out 
is um, the word of God. It's that laver of pure water. So after the priests had sacrificed on the altar and were bloody because of the transgression of sin, they could be clean before they came into the presence of God. Then they would come into the tabernacle structure proper, and on the left-hand side would be the uh, menorah, or the candlestick. On the right-hand side would be the table of showbread. And um, these two things we'll find out. Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. Uh, These are symbolic of Christ or typology of him. And then you come to the altar of incense. And then separating that is a curtain, which we're going to see was the veil of his flesh. And then we'll come into the most holy place, uh, which is where the Ark of the Covenant was. So what was the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant? All right, well, this is where God met with them. And one time a year, instruction was given to the high priest that he could go into this room, the holiest of holies, and offer blood upon it. And to offer blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of Israel. Now, to atone means to cover, but not to remove. And the blood of Jesus Christ as it fulfills the type, not only atones for our sin, but remits our sin and forgives us of all of our sin. And so that's just a a picture of where the Ark of the Covenant would be in relationship to the tabernacle as a structure. All right, Um, so the Ark shows us uh, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ, through its contents. Now, as I said, what does the Scripture say was in the Ark of the Covenant. Well, we learned one thing from reading Exodus 25. Um, And I don't know if you can see that or not, but that is the uh, picture of the original Ten Commandments. Do you believe that? No, all right. What happened to the originals, by the way? They didn't last very long, did they? When Moses came down off the mountain, the children of Israel... We're having an idolatrous party down in the valley, and Moses uh, broke the Ten Commandments, right? Ooh, wow. Um, But also inside the Ark of the Covenant, besides the Ten Commandments, uh, were a couple of other things. There was a golden pot of manna, and so I don't know if that picture even can represent that. And then there's an almond blossom uh, branch in there. And so through its contents. So let's look at this, uh, letter A, the law, or the Ten Commandments. Now this is called the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of Testimony. God gave them covenant to keep. If you'll obey these ten, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's a covenant, God entering into a relationship with his people. It's also a testimony. It's a written record it's, it's a measurement of how we can know our relationship with God. You know, the sad thing is today is that most of you, if I were to ask you to do this right now, could not write down 10 commandments. So you wouldn't know whether you're offending God or not. Now, in the Old Testament, there were 633 commandments. 
Do you know in the New Testament there are over a hundred sins that are listed? How many of you can name all hundred sins? So do we know how to measure whether we're offending God or not? And so that's what a testimony is. It's, it, it's a, a measuring stick of the relationship. And of course, the people right away broke that, and they knew that they needed mercy. And thus, God graciously covered their sins, even though they had breaken, broken the word of God. But Christ came to complete the type. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, he said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law, but rather to fulfill Now, what is the law? It's the five books of Moses. Where do we find the teaching of the tabernacle as a symbol, as a type? In the law of Moses. So he came to fulfill that type of the law that was set forth. And so this is why in John chapter 1, verse 1, we have a unique name given to us. Why don't you turn there for just a minute? John chapter 1, verse 1. And so you can read John 1 1, and then you can read John 1 14. And you tell me who is that special person in verse 1, and then you can find his identity in verse 14. So I'll give you just a second to look those up. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All right, and then verse 14. And the word became and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ. He's the word. He's the living word of God. He's the fulfillment of the law. He fulfilled the law. Now, also inside the Ark of the Covenant was the manna. Please take your Bibles and go over to John chapter 6, verse 51. All right, in John chapter 6, verse 51, uh, Jesus is telling the people something that they thought was absolutely repulsive that he had to uh, be eaten by them, all right? And so they're like, oh, whoa, this is gross. You know, that, that's cannibalism. What are you talking about, all right? But John chapter 6, verse 51, Jesus says this, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give him is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Now, is Jesus being literal here? No. He's talking about typology. He's that living bread which came down from heaven. What came down in the wilderness for 40 years from heaven every day? Manna. So Jesus Christ says, I am that living bread. You need to eat of me. Now, yes, they literally ate manna back in the day of Moses, but we don't literally eat the body and the blood of Jesus Christ today, okay? But we do have to, by faith, believe in him and receive him. And if we do, then the promise is that his life is given for us and we can have life in him. Now, I'll not take time to turn there, but 
Uh, if you go back into the book of Numbers, there was an event, and so I'm talking about the third object that is in the Ark of the Covenant, which is uh, Aaron's rod which budded. Um, I don't know, how many of you have ever seen an almond tree in the wild? All right. So sometimes in the summer they drop all their leaves, and, um, but that little almond can be hanging on there, even in the summer. So I can imagine being in a desert environment that when God commanded them to snip an almond branch, that it was probably dried, right? No signs of life on it. But the leaders complained about Moses and Aaron, specifically about Aaron's priesthood, that Aaron shouldn't be the priest, and so they grumbled against him. And God told Moses, tell the leaders that they should go out to this almond tree and cut off an almond branch. Tell Aaron to do the same thing. Bring them in before the Ark of Testimony, and then the people will see whom God accepts. So they set these dead branches before the Ark of the Covenant. They came in the next morning, and by the way, they were supposed to write their name on their individual branch. And so Aaron wrote his name on his branch. He came in the next morning. Not only did Aaron's almond branch have leaves and the almond blossom on it, but it actually produced almonds overnight. That's the power of God, showing God's authority and God's acceptance upon Aaron's priesthood. So that was placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this I don't think that we can speak too definitely of, but I can remember years ago, uh, one of my uh, college classmates was from a part of the world where they did not have the fall season. He, He must have been from the grasslands. And so... We were driving through the Appalachian Mountains going up to Asheville, North Carolina, and all the trees had lost their leaves. And he was very sad. He's like, are all these trees dead? What happened here? I said, oh, no, they're not dead. They're just dormant. They went to sleep, and they'll come back out in the spring. He's like, oh, that's like a resurrection. I said, yes, it is. And so this branch then that was bare and had no buds on it, Aaron's rod that blossomed, was like a resurrection, Jesus Christ being the resurrection and life. It's symbolic of that. John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. All right, let's look at our third point. The ark shows us our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I want you to to once again uh, keep a ribbon in Romans 3.25, but I want you to go over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. Now, not the Gospel of John, but 1 John. Did you know there are four books of the Bible with the name John? There's the Gospel of John, and then I had a friend who called them the three little Johns. All right? Little John 1, Little John 2, and Little John 3. But in 1 John uh, chapter 1, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 4, in verse 10, this is what we read about Christ our Savior. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. 
Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now here's that funny word again, propitiation. Why don't you try to get your tongue to say that with me? Propitiation. What is propitiation? All right. It's a Bible word. That's what it is. It's a word which means to satisfy God's righteous demands. The soul that sins, it shall die. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Leviticus chapter 11. So propitiation is the fact that God is satisfied and that something has happened so sin could be propitiated so that he could overlook sin. Well, in the Old Testament tabernacle, an animal was slain at the bronze altar as you came in the gate. The priest would carry a basin. He would go to the wash basin and clean up but still have his basin of blood. Then he would go into the holy place and offer incense before God and pray before he goes into the holiest of holies. Then once a year, the high priest then would go in to the holy of holies and with blood on his hands, literally, the sin of the people, he would take that animal's life that had been given as a substitute for the people. Do you remember? The people were supposed to take two goats. One would be the scapegoat that would be released, but the other would be the sacrificial goat that would be slain, and its blood then was applied by the high priest to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, in this picture, there's a bright light between the angels, Some have envisioned that to be the Shekinah glory of God dwelling between uh, the angels. By the way, they're not looking face to face. They're looking down at the mercy seat. We read in the book of Revelation that the angels blushed in God's presence. They covered their feet with one set of wings. They covered their faces with another set of wings. And with a set of wings, they flew. But God's holiness is what makes him unique and to be worshipped and to be revered. Not a person in this room who in your nature, you're holy in and of yourself. This is what makes God so unique is his holiness. And so that in and of itself needs to be propitiated. Sin cannot come into his presence. The book of Habakkuk says he is of purer eyes than to behold sin. So the priest comes in with the life of an animal that has been given with its blood And puts it upon the altar. And so Jesus Christ then shed his blood on the cross. And it can be applied on your account in God's sight. If you will ask for the forgiveness of your sin. Now, look. There's no one that's better than anyone in this room today. We're all broken and messed up people. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said he was the chiefest of sinners. Why would Paul say something like that? 
Well, because he was a murderer. He murdered Christians. And so there's not a person in this room today that cannot be forgiven because Jesus Christ has made satisfaction for your sins because he is the mercy seat. You know what mercy is, don't you? It's where God withholds the punishment that we deserve. So God, through Jesus, withholds the punishment that you and I deserve for our sins. This is the mercy seat, and this is where God meets us. God meets us in mercy, amen? Each one of us deserves to die because of our sin, but he offers to us the forgiveness of our sins. And so this is then the the significance of the Ark of the Covenant in and of itself is the mercy seat, Romans 3.25, whom Christ hath set forth to be a propitiation for our sins through faith in his what? His shed blood. You see, salvation is a work that only Jesus could do. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. You're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's the blood of Jesus Christ. And so Christ is where you can meet God. He is where you will find mercy for your sin. God still desires to meet with you, even though you may be like Paul and describe yourself the chiefest of sinners. So don't think that your sin is greater than God's mercy. That would be idolatry. Because God says he will forgive you. This is where God will meet you, is at the mercy seat. He's the propitiation. He's that intensification. So the animal was slain at the bronze altar, but it was brought in before the mercy seat where there was propitiation. That's why there's the symbolism between the two goats. Jesus Christ, his blood was shed for you so that you could go free. That's why the scapegoat was set free. That's why it disappeared. That's why when God is merciful and forgives you of your sin, he remembers your sin no more. He removes them as far as the east is from the west. You see, that's a beautiful thing because if it was north and south, you would end up at the North Pole, right? But if you go east, there is no East Pole. There is no West Pole. You're constantly going west. And so what that's basically saying is God's forgiveness is infinite. It's complete in its totality, complete forgiveness of all your sins. The blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. Praise the Lord. I had a man ask me one time, well, how can his sacrifice 2,000 years ago forgive my sins today? I said, think of it this way, and this is in the exchange. Your sins were future 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ died for you. So even your future sins that you'll commit tomorrow have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. So all your sin is forgiven you. 
because Christ is your propitiation. This is where you meet Christ. Now let's go over to Ephesians chapter 3 for just a moment and look at verse 17. Ephesians 3, 17. Ephesians comes after the book of Galatians. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 through 20. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by what? How does Christ dwell with us? How do we meet God today? By faith, believing, that ye being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth and the height. Now, some commentators might say the Ark of the Covenant had measurements, its length, its width, its depth, its height. Well, Jesus Christ said all of that, but that we might be able to know the love of God which passes all knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. You know what your greatest need is? God's glory. I was telling the children in Sunday school this morning, do you know what your greatest need is? It's God's glory. It'll change the way you pout when you don't get what you want. You as adults need God's glory because it'll change the way you fight with your spouse. It won't happen. God's glory is your greatest need. And it brings glory to God when we admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior. It brings glory to God when we explore the depth, the width, the height, the length of God's glorious forgiveness in Christ our propitiation, in Christ our mercy seat. And so this is the significance of the Ark of the Covenant. If you can get only one thing from the message today, if you think the rest of it is stretching it, fine. But this is one thing you cannot deny that the scripture so firmly ties that Christ is the propitiation for your sins. His blood satisfies the Father's righteous requirements. He is the mercy seat. And then in closing, we'll look here at the fourth point. The ark shows us our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, through its, are you ready to write in the last blank? Its position, very quickly. If you were to look at the instructions on how the camp of Israel was to be organized around the tabernacle, they were on all sides. But what was in the midst? The tabernacle. If you were to look at the structure of the tabernacle, what is at the very heart of the tabernacle is the mercy seat. All I can tell you is this. God has given us the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. John chapter 14, he said that the Holy Spirit of God shall be in us. In Ephesians, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. 
God dwells in us. And so you see here its position. Well, the tabernacle was in the middle of the camp of Israel. Numbers chapter 2, God is in our midst. He's in our middle. The Holy of Holies is the innermost room of the tabernacle. Uh, But then let's take our Bibles in closing and go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7. We read, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. You know what? In the Old Testament, the priest, the high priest, could only go into the Holy of Holies once a year. The Bible says when Jesus Christ died on the cross, literally the veil of the temple was ripped from the top to the bottom. The book of Hebrews says that that veil existed because it signified that the way into the presence of God was not yet made perfect. But then when Jesus Christ came and through the veil of his flesh being torn for you and me opened a way for you and I to have a relationship with God. And the beautiful thing is not only is heaven wide open, but God will come into each one of us and dwell within us. And that's why we have this treasure in an earthen vessel. This is why Paul says to the Corinthians, what know ye not that your body is the temple? Well, the temple is what replaced the tabernacle. That your body is the temple of God. The Holy Ghost which dwells in you, for you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. So today, God wants to meet with you. God has provided a way for you to meet with him. The Ark of the Covenant, the one thing that you should walk away from here knowing is that there was a mercy seat and it was there God met the people of Israel. It is through Christ who is that mercy seat and it's where we meet God today. So you can't have a relationship with God through some other way some other religion, some other God. That's why Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes unto the Father but by me or through him. And so today, is your fellowship with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, have you applied God's merciful propitiation by faith your own life, also known as, have you repented?